What's up, everybody? Uh, this is your boy Streets, and it's Thursday, April the 23rd, and this is episode 37, take two of the Anything Goes podcast. And I call this take two because I was recording earlier. I started at 5.15, and I got interrupted uh, unceremo- unceremoniously. <laughs> I got tongue-tied, I'm sorry. But uh, I got interrupted, but it was needed because that episode, that recording wasn't going well in the beginning. It started picking up towards the end. I shook off the cobwebs. I've been having a shitty day. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't going to record. I was going to push it back to tomorrow. But that interruption was needed. You know, it got me back focused. Um, I started sipping a little more of my 1800. I said, you know what? Forget the wine. It's a gloomy day. I think a lot of my supporters are probably feeling doom and gloom. It's just been a crazy two months. So sometimes you got to switch it up. So I'm sipping a little 1800. I'm more relaxed. I'm more loose. I needed that interruption. Um, I needed to recalibrate and I needed to smile. And that's what y'all need to do. So we're going to jump right into it. Since I spoke to you guys last with episode 36 on last week, what a different seven days make. And starting on last Thursday, man, we had a lot to we had a lot going on. And we're gonna jump into it, but we're gonna start with the latest news and then we're gonna backtrack. So You'll see how it all ties in, man. So we're going to start with, of course, Babyface versus Teddy Riley on Teddy Riley on Instagram Live. And that was a debacle uh, the first time. They had probably the most views of any other IG battle, and it sucked. And it didn't suck because of Babyface. It sucked because Teddy Riley was being extra. Um, he was being extra. The sound was horrible, and he was just doing the most. And they redid it, I think, on Monday, but I didn't tune in. I didn't care to tune in. To me, the magic was already lost. It's like trying to reheat cold french fries. It doesn't work. So, you know, I hope people enjoyed the battle, but I couldn't tell you anything about what happened. I was completely turned off the first time. I don't believe you have to be extra to get your point across. We know you're dope. We know you want to be relevant, but, you know, just stick to the script. <clears throat> you know, we could have did without all the extra. So moving right along, the Last Dance documentary for the Chicago Bulls 1998 season, that last season, that last 3 P with the GOAT, Michael Jordan with the best Pippin ever. The best Pippin ever, the best Robin ever, and Scottie Pippen, and the greatest coach ever to be on the sideline, Phil Jackson. This documentary is, to me, five stars already, just from two episodes. Um, we've learned a lot. This was deemed the last dance uh, by Phil Jackson that season because he knew 
he wasn't coming back. It was um, etched in stone, and that team wasn't coming back. That team would never be the same, and it's never been the same. They've never reached that that dominance again. I mean, Derrick Rose came, and he was about to put that entire organization on his back, and I think he would have got one. He would have gotten a ring. He was that good. He was, if you think about it, that team was what the 76ers won. What what the seventy sixers were back in oh one with AI and um with that defensive team built around him. That's how the Bulls were. They were Derrick Rose and a bunch of great defenders. And you can just throw Carlos Boozer in. He might have been D Rose Aaron McKee, with the exception that he started. But they, they never got back to the finals. They haven't been to the Eastern Conference Finals, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 1998 was that last run, man. And, you know, episode one started and just suspected through the entire documentary. This is going to be Michael Jordan heavy. And episode one was just that. <clears throat> and he deserves it. I mean, the man changed basketball forever. We can't lie. Like, the money the NBA started getting is because of Michael Jordan. He should get a check an extra check, you know, he's the owner of the Charlotte Hornets, but he should get an extra check every quarter <laughs> because of what he did for the league. Um, Man, they start with the early years, him getting cut from his varsity team, going home crying to his mom. But we need to, like, dive into this a little deeper because – he got cut from the varsity team. He was a sophomore, but he played JV that year. So he was able to take his mom's advice, which was, you know, look, if you want it, you'll get better. If you want to be on varsity, you'll get better. And he did. He dominated JV that year. He got better. And this is a ongoing theme with MJ. You're going to start seeing that more throughout the series. You see it in the first episode. He just got better. And the catalyst for that was when they started putting in the commentary and video from his father. His father pretty much explains what it is that lit the fire under MJ. He had a brother. And his brother could do a lot of hands-on handiwork. His brother was good as at basketball, so his father paid more attention to him. And MJ yearned for that. Like, Mike wanted that. He wanted that attention. He wanted to know that he was doing good. But his dad was like, no, you know, you're not. So <laughs> every NBA player who did not get a ring from... 91 until 98, blame Michael Jordan's dad for that. Um, it, it made him a competitor. You know, he was like, if you tell him he can't do something, well, to get the best out of him, and to get the best out of him, you tell him he can't do something and he'll do it. He'll prove you wrong. He'll want to prove you wrong. And that is a dope characteristic to have. So we get to see where this ultra competitiveness came from. It came from the home. Um, it 
documents when he went to UNC. They have James Worthy talking, and he said, look, you know, it was after practice one day. I'm full of sweat. I'm tired. I'm walking off the court, and this kid pulls me back on the court to play. And he said he realized, like, he's the best player here. He realized that. I thought. I think they said maybe the first game. <laughs> he realized, like, yeah, this dude, he's the, he's the best player here. Um, he went on to hit the game on a shot in the national championship against Georgetown. His name started bubbling. He started becoming a household name. He started become started to become a phenom early, but it, he didn't really get to that all time like the the greatest college basketball player. He didn't get to that level. I think if he would have stayed that fourth year at Carolina, that would have happened. He got better and better. I've never seen anybody jump out the gym the way I seen him in those Carolina highlights that they put in the documentary. I'm like, damn, this dude was a crazy athlete, and he was. Dean Smith tells him um, after his junior year, declare for the draft. You know, I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to hold you back. You know, and it would have benefited Dean Smith and Carolina for him to stay, but he knew how good he was. You already have a national title. You don't need anything else. Go conquer the NBA. And he did. So in 1984, he was drafted third overall. And I know people by now, they know the, the two names that were taken before him. And it's funny because that draft is great, but the greatest players in that draft, only two, as great as the players were in that draft, only two have rings. And that's Michael Jordan, who was the third pick, and Hakeem Olajuwon, who was the first pick for the Houston Rockets. And it's funny because Hakeem <clears throat> got drafted first, Jordan got drafted third, but they flip-flopped. Jordan became the greatest player in the league, and Hakeem Olajuwon was arguably the second greatest player. <clears throat> Jordan has six rings. Hakeem has two. Houston and Chicago won a draft. The second pick of that draft was Sam Bowie, and I had to pause because you should see the look on my face. I feel bad for Portland because they were – Caught between a rock and a hard place. If they would have got number one seed, <clears throat> number one seed, if they would have got the number one pick, they would have picked a king. Hands down. They would have put picked a king and paired him with Clyde Drexler. And more than likely, the Trailblazers would have won a championship. Seriously. They went, what, back to back? So they would have won a 90. I think MJ and the Bulls would have beat them a 91. But they would have won in 90 um, with Hakeem and Clyde. They had to take Sam Bowie. They couldn't take Mike because they had Clyde Drexler. Clyde Drexler and Michael Jordan were essentially the same player. Portland couldn't see into the future that this is going to be the greatest of all time because if they could have, they probably would have taken MJ. And put him back there with Clyde. Move Clyde to the three, MJ at the two. That would have been a crazy dynamic duo. 
Um, but it's the 80s. It's the land of the Giants. Sam Bowie's on the board. Hakeem is gone. We gotta put some we gotta get somebody down here for that monster in Houston that we're gonna have to see a couple times a season. So they took him. He was a bust. Injury prone. That's the 84 draft. You know, in retrospect, you had John Stockton and Charles Barkley. They came out in that draft as well. But like I said, the only two to get a ring was MJ and Hakeem. Uh, they go and, and talk about when he broke his foot, his second year in the league. Um, they make it to the playoffs. <clears throat> they had a horrible record. They were like 30 and 52. That, that was ridiculous when I saw it. <laughs> um, they lost one three against the Bucks. But then in 86, they go uh, up against living legend Larry Bird. Real talk. That was one of the greatest players in the NBA between him and Magic. So you have this new kid on the block, two years in, going against the legend, one of the greatest of all times. And in game two of that series, Larry Bird was quoted at the end of the game after Michael Jordan dropped 63 in the guard. He said, that was... That was Jesus, you know, dressed up as Michael Jordan, basically. Like, we we just watched black Jesus. The things that that man was doing on the court, it made Larry Bird say, yeah, this is the greatest player in the league right now. He's the best. It's time for us to sit down and bow out. Um, not one player could stop, stop this man. He was stopped by teams. The Celtics were deep. The Pistons were deep. The Milwaukee Bucks were their nemesis. So, you know, he was never stopped by a single player. It was team stopping him. But as soon as he got his robbing, things changed. Because before Scottie Pippen got there, it was MJ and, and Charles Oakley. That's who everybody knew. MJ, Charles Oakley, a bunch of... No names. Before MJ got there, it was just a bunch of no names. Then 1987 hit. Scottie Pippen is drafted fifth by the Seattle Supersonics. This is when we get into episode two, when they start talking about Scottie more. He's the youngest of 10 children from Arkansas. Grew up poor. Dad had a stroke, changed him forever. He was disabled, wasn't able to work. One of his brothers had a freak accident at school. Somebody fell on him, crippled him. So getting to the NBA, being a basketball player, that was his man's goal in life. That was his drive. Basketball was his escape from the reality. He says this. He got him out the house. Um, he told one of his friends, like, look, you know, I'm going to make it. And they asked his friend, like, did you believe him? He said, no, he didn't. But something happened. He got to college. He started growing. He put in the work. He bugged the coach to give him a scholarship. They took a chance and it paid off. 
you have arguably the greatest wing defender of all time at your college. He's developing. He's jumping out the gym. He can play defense. He can run point forward. He can do everything on a basketball court, and he's long. And now he's being drafted by by the NBA. Oh, that team is that school is good forever. Real talk. So he's drafted, traded on draft night. He didn't know anything about it, but he did say, you know, everybody out here wants to play in Chicago. Everybody that's being drafted, and that's because Michael Jordan, just like LeBron James, was the you know new up and comer. People seen how great this man was. He just needed help, and he got it. It took a couple years for Scotty to to get to that elite level, but he ended up getting there. Um, in '91, after they win their championship, he signs a five-year, eighteen million dollar extension, which Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, told him not to sign, but. Scotty had to, he didn't want to bet on himself. The times are different. People weren't really taking too many chances. He took the safe bet. He wanted the guaranteed dollars so he could take care of his family. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it was a bullshit contract. And this is where the unraveling begins. Well, let me take it back. The unraveling started really and truly when the Bulls were trying to get into the playoffs. Well, no, the Bulls were trying to miss the playoffs. And this might have been, this was his second, no, third season. I think this is the year that they played the Celtics because they took the minutes restriction off of him, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the playoffs. But they wanted to miss that that year. They wanted to to draft somebody. You know, They wanted a high draft pick that year. And... MJ didn't like that. He's like, we're not doing what we can to win. You know, they were taking him out of the game at pivotal points, <clears throat> threatening the coach. Like, look, you'll be fired if you play him over, um, you know, what was it, 14 minutes, 7 minutes, something, something like that. But that put the doubt in MJ's head. Like, look. We're not doing all that we can to to succeed and to make it. I don't want to lose. You get what I'm saying? So it, it definitely was a interesting story to hear your star player say, no, I don't want to miss the playoffs. We can just build the team. So, you know, that started the split. Mike didn't trust the front office. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, he has a GM under him that is the single reason this dynasty broke up in 98, and that was Jerry Krause. You know, I hate to speak on him because he's dead, but we just have to call a spade a spade. The architect of this team, I mean, he traded Charles Oakley for Bill Cartwright. He um, got... Horace Grant. He got Tony Kukoc, drafted him. He got Dennis Rodman via trade for that second three-peat. It's the architect of the team. You can't deny that, but he wanted to be, he wanted to be given credit, and he wanted to be uh, a 
a rock star. He wanted to be on the level of Phil, Scotty, and Mike. And that wasn't the case. They didn't respect him. Uh, Mike said in the, in, this, in the episodes, he says, do you have diet pills on you? You know, uh, they clowned him about being short. So the dude who's already self-conscious probably <laughs> is being picked on by, you know, his players and his coach doesn't have his back. You know what I'm saying? Or he doesn't have his coach's back. It's just funny. You know what I'm saying? Um, Jerry Jones, he's the owner in the gym of the Cowboys. He's very known, widely respected. Uh, Jim Ursay of the Colts, he's the owner. He wants to be the next Jerry Jones. You had George Steinbrenner for the Yankees. He was known. But it wasn't, it was rare that you had GMs and owners at the forefront of the organizations. You usually let the player, the individual players shine and they push the narrative. But Jerry Krause, he wanted his roses. He wanted people to sing his praises and it ended up undermining the team and destroying it from the inside out. You know, that the front office is what ruined the Bulls. They went into this 98 season telling Phil Jackson, and I mean, Jerry Reinsdorf had to convince him to stay for that season. So they signed him for a year. I think they gave him $6 million for that last season. But Jerry Cross told him, like, even if you go undefeated, this is your last year. And he said it. He said it in a news conference. He said, Phil Jackson won't be back after this season. Well, okay, Mike's not playing for another coach. Scotty already dislikes you guys. He he wants to be traded. You know, in 1995, um, Sam Smith, who wrote the Jordan rules, I had to go um, re- do some research. In the Chicago Tribune, he wrote an article, and it was talking about Scotty Pippen's contract, you know, at how he was – feeling some type of way already. And this was what, four years after he signed the extension. So from 95 to 98, he was pissed off. It was known. But that front office didn't care. Jerry Ronsdorf was like, you sign it, you sign it. Don't come looking for, looking to renegotiate, basically. I don't know how you could feel that way when a player brings you three championships and have you on the brink of going back to the NBA Finals when Michael Jordan isn't there. They could have took care of Scottie Pippen better than they did. They were wrong on so many different levels. With a few, without a few, you know, bogus calls in the playoffs that year, it would have been interesting to see. The Bulls go up, go up against the Rockets because Scottie Pippen wasn't anything to play with when MJ left. People don't understand. They won two more games during the regular season. They didn't fall off a cliff, for real. You just got to go back and watch that series against the Knicks, and you'll understand what I'm saying. But they could have took care of him, man. You know, so Sam Smith, he put it in the article, like, look, you know, this is why he signed the contract and he wants a new one. But 
billionaires don't give a damn. That that's just what it is. So going into that season, going into that last season, Scotty he um could have had foot surgery done during the summer, but he said, you know what? I'm not. I'm not going to ruin my summer rehabbing and being uncomfortable. So he waited. <laughs> he pulled an asshole move. He waited and he missed part of the season. Michael Jordan called him selfish in the documentary, but Phil Jackson was like, no, I understood. I understood where it was coming from. I wasn't mad at him. It was just business as usual. Uh, that season started off rocky. There's a, a moment where the Bulls are going to play the Clippers, and they haven't won the game on the road. And before they go out to the court, you hear MJ say, let's get out first win. Don't make me say that shit again. He wasn't playing. He's a different beast. What I've taken from this documentary is that he outworked everybody. And my comparison to him and LeBron is this. LeBron was born with the talent. The the guys given talent. You can tell. They would never be another LeBron James. That man was destined to be a great athlete. I think he would have been a phenomenal wide receiver. He just has God-given talent. MJ, on the other hand, he worked his ass off to get where he wanted to be. He knew he wasn't physically imposing, so he worked hard. He put on weight. When he started getting his ass beat in the NBA, he put on weight to beat the Pistons. Like, now nah, we got to get tougher. We got to get meaner. We got to be able to go on the lane and take that contact and absorb it. So if people say Jordan is better than, than LeBron, which a lot of people do, and a lot of people say LeBron is better than Jordan, but I can sleep easier at night knowing that this dude outworked everybody, and he's, he probably outworks LeBron. LeBron is in better shape, but for a window from 91 into 98, nobody was snatching a ring from MJ. Hakeem got his two because for 18 months, Jordan was gone. So the dude, it depicts how how hard he worked. He did not want to lose. He did not want to fail. So... Check the documentary out. It comes on again Sunday on ESPN, 9 o'clock. I don't know if they're doing um, two episodes, but it's worth the watch. Take an hour or two out of your day. Sunday, sit down, check it out. It's worth it. So we got to go and talk about the WWE. I grew up a WCW fan, but I also I watched the WWF. I love The Ultimate Warrior. Um, I love Shawn Michaels, the British Bulldog, the Undertaker. Um, I don't watch now. I usually catch up on podcast or on YouTube. But Howard Finkel died on April the sixteenth at the age of sixty-nine from a rare brain disease. His brain was shrinking. A lot of people thought that he had a stroke and 
that's what was going on, but it wasn't. He did not want people to know this. Tommy Dreamer came out and, and spoke about it. Jerry the King Lawler, he put the stroke um, theory out there, but, you know, sometimes you just shouldn't say anything. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you don't know the truth. But the truth is, he, he had a brain disease. It was causing his brain to shrink, and he ended up dying from it. Uh, this is the voice of my childhood for the WWF. Howard Finkel was in the WrestleMania game for Super Nintendo. Uh, you know, they had steel frames back then, so it gave his introduction, how he would introduce the wrestlers, you know, coming down the aisle from Death Valley. You know, that's how he sounded, so... Uh, it, it gave the still frames of that, man. He had some iconic moments, you know, WrestleManias. Uh, man, that's a tough pill to swallow. You know, he was the first employee of the WWF. Seriously, when Vince Jr. bought the WWF from Vince Sr., that was the first employee, employee you know, and he played an integral part and naming WrestleMania and um, making sure that events were being ran at the Garden the right way. So, you know, my hat's off to the Finkel family. Uh, rest in peace to a legend. Yeah, it was a sad day, but it gets worse. We're going through this corona crisis. The economy is shit right now. People are out of work, and the WWE decides... Even though they have a $500 million cash reserve, we're going to fire people. We're going to cut talent. And we're going to tell people that we're cutting talent after we tell them we're essential. We're deemed essential by the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or DeSantos. We're going to talk about him some more later. And we make the announcement that we do have this $500 million cash reserve, but to hell with some of these employees, we don't need them. And, and that's fucked up because they're called independent contractors, but they can't just walk out the door from the WWE and go work somewhere else. No, that's not how it works on their end. On the WWE end, they can void a contract at any given time. And this is what they did. A lot of these guys have asked for their releases before. They were throwing a shitload of money and they took the money instead of going somewhere where they would be appreciated and given the time to shine. Vince has shown us how cutthroat he is. And I'm going to deviate from this topic to another one, but it ties into it. It's still stand with the WWE and Vince McMahon. If you're a fan of Dark Side of the Ring, that's a Vice series. They talked about Jimmy Snooker and his girlfriend that he killed, essentially. Uh, never convicted, but he nonetheless, all of the evidence and the details from the case shows that he killed her. Brutally. Killed her at that. Years later, Jimmy Snooker comes out and he's doing an interview, or it's in his book one, where he's talking about Vince McMahon and a secret meeting that they had with 
the police department. And Vince McMahon told Jimmy to be quiet. And Vince had a briefcase. And I'm pretty sure we can just fill in the details. It seems like Vince paid the police department off to keep his boy out of prison. Because before Hulk Hogan, Jimmy Snooker was the biggest baby face in the WWF. He was a draw. He was an attraction. He was in some historical feuds. But after this, that push stopped, which it should have. I think that was his punishment. He was spiraling out of control, but that's neither here nor there. This shows you how Vince McMahon will protect his bottom line. <clears throat> and that's what he did in the snooker situation. And this is what he's doing with his talent. He's cutting the fat. And he's hiding it under like, okay, you know, uh, we're going through this global crisis right now. You know, we have to we have to save money. No, you don't. They're fine. They could have kept everybody because they wouldn't have granted these people's these people their releases at any other time. They didn't even grant them a release. They fired them. So prior to this happening. They wouldn't have been able to get out of their contracts to go work for the competition, even though they're not being utilized. But at least they would have had some some wiggle room to go out here and find a job. Now they don't because it's not beneficial to any other organization. While you can't run live shows or um, house shows, you can't do independent events. Why would you cut these people? I hope you gave them a severance package. I really do. I hope you didn't just put them out on the street. And I hope that this package that you gave them lasts the remainder of the year and even into the next year. Because you know what? A lot of these these guys, you could have let them walk a while ago, and you didn't. They fired Kurt Angle. They fired... Rusev, which Rusev and EC3 are the two names where I'm like, thank God that these two have been liberated because they're so talented and so underutilized. It's ridiculous. MJF from AEW is what EC3 should have been for the WWE, but they're too brain dead to realize that they had a superstar, a young upcoming stud, a heel that would have pushed the envelope with any and everybody. But they just sat on him. Rusev got over with Rusev Day. They could have put the WWE title on him or the world title. I mean, the universal title on him, but they didn't. And now you let them walk. You fire them at a time where you know they can't go out here and get work and be prosperous. Um, Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows, they will let go. They'll be fine. They're, they're connected. They can go back to Japan. They can go to NWA because they are a brutalizing tag team. And I think they'll look good in that NWA ring, especially if the Revival goes there. I would love to see the Revival up against Anderson and Gallows in the NWA.
Um, and they also, their boys are Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. They can go to the A to AEW. They'll be fine. It's just the timing is so shitty. Mike Kyoto, the longest tenured employee there, 30 years of service, fired. You couldn't wait. This is how cutthroat billionaires are. They don't give a damn. So I hope everybody that's been affected, you know, Drake Maverick, he put out a video on Twitter being emotional. He's like, I won't get to say goodbye to the people that I've built relationships with. And that sucks. That really does sucks. You know, that really does suck. So, you know, my, my hat's off to them. You know, I hope and pray that they find work in this troublesome time. You know, the timing was definitely off. And Vince McMahon, I hope God has mercy on you. But I really don't think he cares. One day we're going to dive into that. But uh, I don't think he gives a damn. Transitioning over to hip-hop. We're on the brink of a beef. <laughs> For real. And this beef is between French Montana and Young Thug. And this is where listening to one's opinion and not commenting comes into place. Because French Montana was doing an interview and he, he pretty much said, look, in a festival setting, Kendrick can't really rock with me. He's the better artist, better album. But I have the singles, I have the hits. I will rock a festival. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. You know, he does have hits. He has a lot of hits. He has some dope-ass features. He's not an all-time great. Kendrick is already. Kendrick is the face of a generation along with J. Cole and Drake. Seriously. But he's not wrong. He, I, People can argue he's right. I don't think he's right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like Kendrick is one of those people that if you put on any Kendrick album, any Kendrick mixtape, if you do a playlist, he will have the whole crowd rocking. Why? Because people who go to festivals, they digest music like, I'm waiting on Andre 3000 to drop an album. Even if it's 10 years from now, that's how dedicated those people be. And they put they pay a pretty penny for their tickets. Kudos to the people who run the festivals. You're making a shitload of money. <laughs> for real. Somebody put me on. But those people are going to rock with Kendrick. They are. Maybe it depends on the city. Maybe if he's in Atlanta or something. You know what I mean? French might get the crowd. But Dot going to rock it wherever he's at. Wherever he goes, he's going to rock it. Young Thug chimed in. Basically said, man, you silly as fuck. You're not fucking with Dot. 
French Montana throws a shot. You know, he responds like, you know, that's what's up. Thank you for being in my video with your skirt on, thug. That was dope. With a, with a dress on, basically. Thug responded. Fuck you, bitch ass nigga. Like, I thought we was cool. I thought you was my man. You see how things get crossed? How lines get crossed? How miscommunication can escalate things? So now, <clears throat> I got to show you how gangster I am. That's what both people are thinking. When it's not that serious. You're millionaires, man. This shit should be beyond you. For real. Shouldn't even be a problem. French shouldn't have got offended. It's an opinion. If you don't want people to have an opinion of your opinion, don't put your opinion out there. Don't say anything. Real talk. Because I can't vouch for either one of these guys. I can't say he ain't a street nigga. He ain't, you know, putting in no work. He never put in no work. He never got his hands dirty. I can't say that. <laughs> About French. <laughs> I can say that about Thug. Oh, he put in work. Flocka cosign. Gucci cosign. We seen some shit happen where Thug was involved. That ain't a tree you want to bark up. I mean, we men at the end of the day, but if you want to test somebody, and, and especially if your track record don't speak for that, man, that ain't the one you want to try. And I'm not dick riding. I'm just being honest. There's rules to this shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and K-Dot just sitting back like, damn, I'm the topic of the conversation. Thank you. I'll be dropping something soon. You know, Top Dog, they've been putting out songs all week. Something coming. Y'all making my man more relevant than he already is because he doesn't have to put music out. Was to anticipate a Kendrick Lamar album or a single. So it's free free publicity. Thug doesn't have to do that either. He's one of the people that we wait on him to put out music. Uh, French, not so much, man, but he's a heavyweight with the single. So I hope they can put it behind him and squash this petty shit. I don't want to see nothing happen. Nothing probably will happen. They're millionaires. They're um, definitely insulated. So it is what it is. Man, so we had breaking news before I got on, before I did my first take at 5.15. So it's not really breaking news anymore, but the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, he extended the stay-at-home order to May 8th, and I appreciate him for that. We need it. People are tripping. Seriously, you got people protesting to open up the state. You have, and I mean, this is all over the country. This isn't just North Carolina. You know, it's people that's really having cabin fever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's, it's ridiculous. He comes on, he says, well, we're extending until May the 8th, which is great. And even then, when we do open back up, if it is May the 8th, it's going to be slow. It's not going to be, you know, y'all go out here and everything is just back to normal. I wish it could be like that. But it's not. 
and he's doing the right thing. And this is the one time where I feel like our governor gives a fuck about us because he's not gun-ho on opening back up the state. You know, and they're doing some things to really compensate for it, giving people an additional uh, 200 what fifty dollars in food stamps because of their kids? Like they're they're doing this in such a way that it's taking some of the burden off of people who are being affected financially, people who aren't getting the hours, people who have been fired or laid off. Well, really laid off because they can't work. You know, so this our state is showing its ass right now and being very competent. But <laughs> it's always <laughs> those badass kids when you're growing up that just can't seem to get right. And I have to talk about this one particular state that Charlemagne the God, Uncle Charla, he has a saying. He says, the craziest people in, what is it, America or the world? Or in the Bronx and all of Florida, or from, or from the Bronx and all of Florida, he's right. Florida is tripping. Governor Ron DeSantis, DeSantos, whatever his name is, this dude does not give a damn about anybody in that state. Florida opens up last week, he opened beaches. And this tells you it's not everybody in Florida. Let me let me correct myself. Everybody down there isn't tripping because 76 percent of Floridians didn't want the state to open up until the health experts said it was okay to go back out and to start living this normal life again. Seventy six percent. I don't know how many people they polled, but that's a big number and people are saying no we'll rather wait the governor's like hell no we got to get this money we got to open up we losing too much money billionaires want to continue to make money at any cost you know why because they don't have to be out here in the public eye they don't have to go to their office they don't have to be around Anybody, these managers, these district managers, these GMs, they're not finna go into these offices during a pandemic. They're not finna expose themselves to anything, but they're going to tell you to do it. Think about that. They're going to tell you to risk your life so that they can make money and you're making all of their dreams come true because you put in the groundwork in. I'm like, oh no, we're losing too much business. We're losing too much money. I might not be able to get that bonus that I wanted at the end of this year if we don't op- hurry up and open up. And this shit is smacking Florida in the face for sure because Florida cases are at 29,000 positive test for this virus and 960 deaths 
They had 33 deaths overnight from last night to today. And that number's probably risen. That's crazy as hell. You had the mayor of Las Vegas sitting down with Anderson Cooper, Carolyn Goodman, sounding ridiculous. How are we supposed to know what's, you know, how bad the virus is if we don't open up the casinos and get back to, to work, get back to business? She sounded so ignorant. But she's being paid by millionaires and billionaires that in her ear. You want to be reelected, you need to push this sign. You know, you need to push this envelope. You need to to push this agenda. You think those casino owners aren't feeling it? They are, but they have money on top of money. But they're telling you to go out here and risk your life for them. And half the time they don't they don't know us. They don't know our names. They get careless. The CEO of the company I work for, he doesn't know me. You think he gives a damn about me? But I can honestly say this, the company that I work for, they're showing more initiative than the entire fucking state. The entire state of Florida. They are giving us a few outs and a few outlets. And I commend them for that. And following in Florida's footsteps is Georgia and South Carolina. It's like the blind leading the freaking blind. My advice to people is stay home unless you have to be out. Unless you have to go to the store, the hospital, you know, food run. Stay in as much as you can. A very, very, very close brother of mine got the virus. He's better now, but he was sick as hell. It's real. And I think the moment that we all let our guard down and we go out here and act like everything's normal, we're going to see a spike in numbers of confirmed cases and we're going to see more and more death. So everybody just relax, stay calm. I understand we're getting antsy. We want to be outside. We, you know, we feel like they're taking our rights away. They're not. They're not. There's some good people in this world that's like, look, we will exhaust every possible, you know, government aid, every possible you know, billionaire that wants to donate money and and whatever we can do, we're going to exhaust all of our avenues, all of our resources to ensure the safety of our people. And that's what we need. That's what we need running the country. We don't need people like the governor of Florida who doesn't give a fuck and is driven by money. That's That's sad. You should not be driven by greed. Money really is the root of all evil and it's showing right now. Now, for the ignorant people who are just wanting to get out here because they're bored and they just want to, you know, they, they're they tired of sitting in the house or going to Walmart or whatever the case may be. Look, go out here and do you. But don't look for us to, sim- to empathize or sympathize with you when your ass gets sick. For real. 
this virus is is real. It's not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. It might never go anywhere. But if they're telling you to stay in the house, it's not safe. If you still see these numbers growing, take heed and listen. Because a two to three hour turn up or a two weekend turn up is not worth your life. We done turned up enough. We good. Sit your asses down. Turn up after this shit is over with. Turn up at home. You you get what I'm saying? You just, you got to deal with it, man. Before we get out of here, we got to talk about Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers making noise again this week. Tom Brady has the luck of the freaking draw, it, it seems. I swear. Because Tampa Bay traded to get his biggest target ever outside of Randy Moss. Well, he is his biggest target. Scratch it. He won with Gronk. On the highest level. He got Super Bowls with him. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers traded for Rob Gronkowski. They got him out of retirement. They bought him out of retirement. And they're about to be a problem. They are going to be something to watch in the NFC South. I got them winning it already. I think the Saints are done. Drew Brees was showing that he's lost a step. And he's he's a small guy. So I, I think they're they're over and done with the Panthers. They're a shit show. I don't expect them to win more than six games next year. Tampa Bay will rise to the forefront of that division. This dude might get a Super Bowl ring in Tampa Bay. And you know what? If he does that, I will give him the greatest of all time title. I will take it away from Peyton Manning, and now I give it to Tom Brady. But he has weapons. And I know it's like, okay, you bring in an old quarterback, you bring in an aging tight end who's been hurt, but he took a year off. I think Rob knew Tom Brady was going to leave New England after last season because he set the season out. <laughs> Seriously, I think he took that time just to get better, to rehab. It seems no one wanted to be under Bill Belichick again. Not those two prominent players. And that says a lot um, about the culture up there or the lack thereof. So... Kudos to Tampa Bay and their front office for going all in. Sometimes you have to do that. You have to be like, look, this is our window. We This is the, the best team that we're going to have. I feel bad for Jameis Winston. I hope he lands on his feet. I hope he gets a job because he's a great quarterback. He has a great arm. He just needs to become more accurate. They looked at the team. They have a good defense. They have an amazing offense. And now you have a quarterback back there that's going to have a field day picking off these defenses. Tampa Bay is going to run up the score plenty of Sundays. Y'all stay tuned for it. So before I get out of here, I want to thank y'all for rocking with me tonight. Uh, Like I said, it's been one hell of a day. It's been a hell of a, you know, past two months. We will be okay, though. We will. 
I've been overwhelmed and I take my own advice, put my phone down, you know, sit on the porch, whatever, you know, get on YouTube, zone out, vibe out, get your mental, <clears throat> get your mental right. Don't become a prisoner of your own thoughts and your own feelings. But this part of my life is called growth. I'm going to have to grow and it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. Everybody you start with, you're not going to finish with. Whether it be a, um, you know, a friend, uh, family, it could be a relationship. Everybody's not going to grow with you. So, like I said last week, focus on yourself, which is hard. I have to take my own advice. I'm used to putting everybody before me. But in order to grow, you got to be uncomfortable. You feel me? Been through this before was uncomfortable, was emotional because, you know, things were changing around me that I couldn't control. When that happens, everybody, that's how you know it's working. That's how you know you're growing, when you're uncomfortable. So put your phone down, log out of social media, go on Do Not Disturb, or just don't answer your phone. Or just people tell people you need a minute. You need, a, you need time to yourself. You owe that to yourself. But this is episode 37. I'm signing out. Y'all have a good night.